Hi, cuties. We are so excited to be bringing to you today Monica Batara. Monica is a freaking powerhouse, okay? She comes with 25 years experience in frontline clinical and leadership roles all around complex intergenerational trauma and trauma-informed practice. She knows her stuff. Monica is a public speaker. She also teaches and has her own private counseling practice in Chilliwack, British Columbia. She focuses on trauma recovery work with children and adults using somatic play and expressive therapies. We get into what all of that means because her work is largely informed by interpersonal neurobiology and polyvagal theory. And if you were like us who had no idea what any of this was, it's so eye-opening and it's so accessible and practical. We chat coping mechanisms, we chat co-regulation, we chat parenting and personal examples, and Monica also drops some really accessible resources if therapy isn't really your thing, but like, come on. Uh, we also chat about resiliency, which as you know, is a personal uh, touchy topic for me. Also, I would be remiss to not remind you that next week, August 18th, is our live event in Victoria. We're going to be with Tara Tang at Russell Books. It's going to be phenomenal. We're chatting all things pleasure and coming home to yourself and the swag bags, you guys. Holy, okay. Each ticket is like $15 plus some Eventbrite fees or whatever, but the bags themselves are worth over $60 because they have some local BC businesses in it. Um, you're missing out if you don't grab one. That's all I'm going to say. And you're missing out if you're not listening today. So tune in, take some notes. Let's do the damn thing. Hello, Monica. Welcome here. We're so excited to have you. I have been waiting for this day for far too long. I'm excited to pick your brain. I know Aaron's excited to pick your brain. But before we go hard and get crazy, can we just start easy? Can you tell us like who you are? What do you do? Give us the lowdown. The lowdown. Well, one is I'm a really boring person. So <laughs> uh, the fact that you invited me on here, we've been trying um, at this for since last September, I think. That's when we had tried to have this conversation. You know, I think that the first and foremost, I think around identity is that I am an immigrant woman. I'm a person of color. I was born in India and um, not a choice of my own and my, not neither my mom's choice either. Um, we came to uh, Canada when I turned three years old. Okay. And I wholeheartedly identify as Indian and the colonization process has now, I always have a little asterisk by, by my identity, my identifier of Indian, because when uh, colonizers came over, they actually uh, were wanting to go to India. And they ended up on a land and saw people and said, oh, we're in India, here's Indians. And so in the Canadian context, it's a very loaded word. Right. Being from India, I identify as Indian. So that's, that's one of my biggest pieces around identity. Um, I am somebody who really values relationships. For me, relationship is everything and anything. So that is one of my highest values. Another highest value that I have is building capacity. So um, I have been in the not-for-profit sector 
for, I think like since the mid nineties or something like that. And I, I retired from it two years ago and decided to go into full-time private practice. So I'm a therapist. Um, and uh, I specialize in plain expressive therapy and more specifically, I specialize in trauma recovery work, whether you're a child or an adult, whether it's a one-off incident, whether it's reoccurring motor vehicle accidents, sexual abuse, but I do a lot of trauma recovery work as well. And um, the other piece I do is that I'm also a uh, trainer as well. So I love outside of my therapy practice, I also train uh, paraprofessionals, non-clinical, clinical, clinical um, staff, how to work and support people. And that's also one of my highest values is building capacity. Wow. And wow. Can I say, even though I'm a therapist, um, I'm also, there's, I have an obnoxious side to me. So I love board games and there is this non-therapist identity that emerges. Yes. My type A identity emerges and I'm highly competitive and highly obnoxious, which is sort of the antithesis of my therapeutic self and therapeutic values and the space I can hold for clients as well. Wow. So she is stupid cute isn't she is she ever oh my gosh you painted such a full picture i love it thank you so much for sharing with us is there anything you don't do monica like damn <laughs> that is crazy well i have jumped out of a um airplane oh, oh my gosh uh, a half marathon what do i not do you know something? No, this is what I do not do. I finally went camping for the first <laughs> time in my life last year. And the only caveat is I don't do outhouses and oh. I don't do porta potties. So that's my clear line of what I do not do. Fair. So camping grounds have to have flushing toilet yeah. running. So Haley, thanks for that lovely question. That is something that <laughs> It's a very, it's a good one. I, I don't do porta potties either. That's a hard no for me as well. So yeah. I stand with you, girl. Yeah, porta potties yeah. aren't stupid cute. No, they're, they're not. stupid, not cute. <laughs> oh my gosh. Okay. I feel like there's so many different directions we can go, and I'm sure we're going to circle back to them. You've mentioned that you specialize in this area of trauma recovery. Trauma is a big word right now. I feel like it's a very much in the zeitgeist. It's very kind of buzzy. How do you define trauma? Yeah. So can I, to help put some context and better understanding, can I ask that each of you, what is your understanding that we can then come to is because, you know, the first time I heard the definition and the way I'm going to explain it, it was literally a mic drop moment for mm. me because how we understand trauma there's been quite an evolution over the years mm. of defining it understanding it so you know I'm, I'm gonna can I ask the both of you what your understanding of trauma is I would say that oh without obviously I haven't looked this up or anything to me I would say it's an event a circumstance something that has happened that has affected a person culture a family that has had a lasting impact and probably in a like impact being a negative sense would be my guess your turn Haley. <laughs> yeah i mean that's a lot more eloquent than i would have said it like i was just gonna say um i mean i when i think of trauma i think of yeah i guess like a moment or um 
event or situation that I'm trying not to use all the same words that she just used, <laughs> a moment or situation or event that like impacted someone um, or like Aaron said, like a family, culture, et cetera, um, long-term or um, I was also going to say like, maybe it was like a pivoting moment, like almost like defining in some ways where it mm-hmm. kind of changes you in your tracks. Beautiful. What the both of you shared. I'm going to share, uh, you know, borrow some of the words that you, 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 you talked about, but you know, historically people thought the trauma was the sexual abuse. Mm. The trauma was the motor vehicle accident. The trauma was the divorce. And so often it was synonymous with the event. And what we know is trauma is not the event. Trauma is what happens in your nervous system Mm. and how your system responds to the event. And what it does is it creates a certain landscape. And if the trauma recurs over and over or people aren't able to get out of it, they, they don't metabolize it. What happens is, is that it changes your nervous system so that it becomes patterned in a certain way. So the trauma really is the aftermath of what happens in the nervous system and how we often see it is through behaviors. Mm. That's how we see the trauma, but it's what's going on in the nervous system. Okay. So is the behaviors that we're seeing that we're thinking is the trauma then, is that kind of like the trauma cementing? Like you were talking about not metabolizing it and kind of like working through it, et cetera. Is the behaviors then the cementing of the trauma? It's the pattern condition. That's what's going on internally that, that does the cementing. So just to sort of give some, some sort of context, right? Our autonomic um, system, uh, ANS, autonomic nervous system, it um, is our internal surveillance system. So this is a really primitive part of our, our system. And what it, there's a lot of other functions it has, but one of the functions is that it scans our environment to, to really, is this safe? Is this not safe? Is this safe? Is this not safe? And what happens is that when there is a threat, real or perceived, because our brain can't tell the difference, we go into what we are conditioned to do. So when we perceive a threat or the threat is real, is our nervous system, it goes into a stress response, or sometimes people call it survival mode. And we go into certain patterns. We go into hyper arousal. So people have often heard, you know, the fight, flight, or freeze and collapse. And, 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 you know, our understanding of those states have changed a bit. But what we do is, is that our system either when we perceive there's a threat and there's something we can do, our system, it, this is what it's designed to do. Mm. We mobilize and we go into fight or flight. When we feel a sense of helplessness or we, we aren't able to fight or flight, what we will do is we will actually immobilize. We will start to shut down in order to be able to deal with that threat. Mm. So what happens is, is that people often think about is that there's something wrong with this. And really our system is designed to do that. To go, there's a threat. We need to go into protection mode. So we go into this mode, we, we do these things. And what happens is, is that at some point is, is that we go back to baseline where we see it become problematic for people 
is is that when they they uh, survive and then they adapt, which is great, but it's those clients that where they survive and they keep reliving and they go into that loop because their 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 internal surveillance system becomes really sensitized to unsafe, unsafe, unsafe. Mm. And so the behaviors that are attached to it often is that they communicate a lot of information. So when I see clients that go into fight or flight or they start to immobilize and start to collapse, that so beautifully communicates is I'm dysregulated, I'm overwhelmed, I'm in survival mode. And so people do behaviors to help protect themselves or to help regulate. And it's these protective behaviors and these regulating behaviors that often become quote unquote problematic because a person experiencing it can't make sense of this. Mm. And actually it's communicating a whole lot. So it brings up a question for me and we've talked here before about like, um, sometimes seeking out like a, an environment or like a um the context we had spoken about before was like if you grow up in chaos maybe you seek out chaos after is that um a trauma response because often like trauma is only like you know the big events right like you were talking earlier the car accident the sexual assault these kinds of things but I mean correct me if I'm wrong Monica but like even smaller things can also be trauma and so if you're seeking out that that environment like you know if you're used to being not safe and so you're going into a relationship that's not safe or you're you know driving recklessly because that feels familiar to you is that a trauma response then well, I I'm not going to say seeking chaos or whatever like you know I'm not going to be absolute about it but I I become curious about seeking that particular environment what does that do for a person so the hard part of just giving it yes or no without understanding context mm-hmm. feel really heavy right mm-hmm. or it can feel very shaming and stuff like that so i'd be just really curious about what goes on for the person so does their system get dysregulated and flooded and they seek this out because there's something regulating for them so i i i there needs to be some more context versus is this trauma or is this a trauma response or not? Could you maybe paint this picture, Monica, for those who maybe this is a new concept, they're only familiar with trauma in the sense of the big T trauma, right? I know there's some interesting conversations happening between the older generation and our generation around this whole concept, right? Like we're coming from people who were raised, you know, by people that were impacted by war or, you know, big moves as a family. Exactly. And then our generation still has things happening, but it looks very different. And so what do you see with clients or in training that would also be classified as trauma? Can you give us some of those examples? That's a great question. And when I do a lot of trainings and somebody actually asked me this last week where they're like, Monica, you're you're not talking about big T trauma, small T trauma, you know, you're not labeling it. I said, because it's not attached to the event. What it's attached to is what happens in your nervous system. Mm. What is the aftermath of it? So somebody, so you could have, for example, you could have three people in a motor vehicle accident. Hmm. two of them are going to like you know go into survival mode there's going to be some residual impact and they adapt and they they move on they go back to baseline then you're going to have that one person that goes through that motor vehicle accident and see the impact 
but you also see them reliving it over and over and over again. So there's a lot of factors that influence or how they're going to be affected or are they going to um, adapt and move on. So for me is that big T trauma, I go with it's what happens in your nervous system because somebody's perception is I'm a middle child. And so for somebody that middle being a middle child becomes something that impacts her in a big way. And for somebody else, um, like my my husband, who's a middle child, he's got a different relationship. To him. Hmm. So I think that that's the other piece is, you know, what do you see both of you had said about the long term impact piece is going to be, how do you see that reliving happen over and over again. So there's a lot of factors that determine how long is this going to last? What sort of behaviors keep showing up? What sort of resources um, do people have? Even prior to that is what is each person's baseline? What is their baseline health coming into that motor vehicle accident? Mm, right. Right. Somebody could have had a few traumatic events under them. Somebody could have lots of resources available to them. Right. Mm-hmm. Right. You know, in the arena of trauma, we we hear a lot about ACEs, the adverse childhood experience study that was done. How many ACEs are a part of your baseline? Um, you know, so there's a lot of factors that influence the outcome. And so I think the idea of trauma equals trauma equals trauma. There's so many variables to look at versus if this happens, it must mean as you're traumatized. Right. Very interesting. I think about my husband and it's not, you know, my story to share, so I won't get into too much of it, but he would be comfortable with me sharing. On paper, he had a traumatic childhood. He had a traumatic teenagehood. He is the most well-rounded, balanced person I know to the point that I'm sitting here. Somebody else had shared this term with us that I'm like therapizing him and I'm like, this must be because of this. And he's like, no, like that, that didn't affect me like that. And it just, it, it doesn't make sense to me. But what you're saying is that the same situation can happen to somebody else or someone like me where I didn't walk through that situation, but on the periphery, it looks like, wow, this would be so huge. Maybe his capacity, what have you, the way he's built, he's just grooving through life. <laughs> we can't say this happened to somebody, therefore, mm. Yeah, a lot of factors to consider. That's something we talk a lot about too. Just like everybody's different thresholds and capacities, and what affects Aaron affects me differently, and vice versa, right? So that makes a lot of sense to me. I guess I'm wondering, like, I've experienced this in my own life, right? Where you know something from my childhood I didn't realize was affecting my marriage and all the boyfriends that I had before, or all the you know these kinds of things that like you don't necessarily connect the dots right away. And so I'm wondering for, you know, someone who's listening, who doesn't know, like, am I repeating, you know, seeking something out? Am I repeating these kind of cycles and doing that kind of like the event and then the adaptation and then completing that circle over and over again? How can you find that out about yourself? And then what can you do moving forward? Mm -hmm. Well, I think, you know, something, uh, our brain and our system is such a wonderful thing. A biological imperative is survival. We are hardwired for survival. So when, you know, things happen, we learn to tune them out. 
learning to forget about them, things like that. That is also part of adapting and surviving as well. And so I think it's different for different people. I've had families that have been mandated for services, and some of them will have those conversations because there's capacity to do so. I've been the same, you know, population is no, I'm not going to touch it. Hmm. Then I have clients that show up at my door, Monica, I'm ready, I'm ready, I'm ready. And as much as there's a desire to be ready, you can see during sessions that the ready isn't there because their, their words might say ready, but their body and their responses are like, this is too scary. Mm -hmm. and, and you see that. And then you have clients where I'm ready to do this. So I think that people's entry point into awareness or entry point into even the arena of I'm ready to do the work is so varied because we can be ready mm. and it can be so scary at the same time. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Can you speak then to what some of these behaviors might look like following trauma? Well, I think about a mobilization and the fight response. It may look different for different people. I think about, I love with teenagers, that fight response might be either literal fuck yous, mm. or it may be <laughs> attitudinal fuck yous, right? But what it is, is that's when you start to see rage. You start mm. to see aggression. Then you also have um, the flight response where it literally is, is that a runner, like, like I'm just running away from this. I'm running away from this emotion. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I'm shutting things down. So what that might look like um, is that somebody who's, who won't go there and find different superpowers to figure out how not to go there. Deflecting could be that as well. Right. Um, you know, when people go into collapse, that's when you will start to see people disconnect. Hmm. So this is where you're going to see things like um, somebody tuning out. Hmm. It's going to be somebody who, could you repeat that again? Sorry, uh, could you repeat that again? Um, I, and, or they're not remembering, right? That they're going to have like gaps in memory. This might be somebody who um, is has a hoodie over their face all the time or is very mouse-like and small. You'll either see hyper arousal, you'll see a lot of fidgety and a lot of movement and a lot of high levels of dysregulation where you'll see too much. And hypo is, is that where it's a collapse and becoming invisible and there'll be behaviors attached to that. Right? Mm. But we also know even something like, you know, um, oppositional defiance. If you look at um, the markers for things like ADHD or ADD or even conduct disorder and things like that, I always look at it from the lens of that all of these are also what we call protective factors or adaptive behaviors for somebody who's in an unsafe situation. It would make sense is they're going to say fuck you to everyone. Hmm. It is going to make sense is I'm going to have big aggression because if big aggression shows up, I'm going to scare you off. Right. I don't take care of my body and I have poor hygiene. Oh, if I smell really bad and look really bad, maybe nobody will want to have this body or use this body or abuse this body and they will stay far away. 
if I collapse and I just, I shut down and I tune my brain out, the thing that's happening to me, I'm just going to completely tune it out. So we see these behaviors and, and they call them adaptive behaviors because all of these behaviors show up to help support survival. And what Western psychology at some point, and I don't like the terminology, but what Western psychology does is at some point when that stimuli or that event is gone and the behaviors continue, Western psychology calls it maladaptive behavior because there's something wrong with it. But actually, behaviors are very much rooted in order for you to survive. Right. So we love therapy here. We are both in therapy. We spend a lot of time talking about our therapy sessions, talking to our therapist, the whole nine, right? But also we recognize, you know, the privilege that being in therapy as frequently as we are is. And so aside from therapy and seeking help from a professional, how do you walk back? How do you make your way back from these adaptive behaviors that Mm -hmm. are may or may not be controlling your life yeah that's a really great question because the other thing that they do these behaviors is they also help to regulate so if i have all this scary energy inside of me because things are freaky and i throw that punch yeah because i have that happen with a lot of four-year-olds that i see Um, but that punch it also helps to regulate because I discharged energy. Right. And you, those ADH behaviors in classrooms that are problematic, it makes sense is if a kid is in hyper arousal, so if they move around, they're trying to help regulate themselves. Mm-hmm. And these are the behaviors where it's like, no, sit still. Yeah. Don't do that. Mm-hmm. How come you're not paying attention? And those behaviors of tuning out is helping to regulate mm. something scary is going on in the moment. Hmm. So would you say then that it's, it's finding different ways to regulate then? Um, it is. Here's the thing about um, self-regulation. Um, I'm going to talk a bit about the myth of self-regulation. Oh, please. Yes, yes, because here's another biological imperative is connection. And we so co-regulation so developmentally co-regulation happens for self-regulation we are trained to be dysregulated if you think about our autonomic nervous system when we're stressed there's a stress response we go into a certain way of being and so we know upon birth how to be dysregulated so the vagus nerve which is part of the parasympathetic nervous system that's the thing that helps us to regulate that is so underdeveloped at birth Hmm. and how we learn to self-regulate actually is through co-regulation so when a baby you know a baby's crying we don't say as baby we're giving you a time out until you can figure out how to regulate and then we're going to pick you up what we do is we pick up baby we put baby close to our heart we might come we're going to sway that is co-regulation. So that is helping to, to, to develop the, the vagus nerve and more specifically the, the ventral branch. It, it's helping to strengthen it, but how that gets strengthened is through co-regulation. 
So the idea around is asking a three-year-old to go have a timeout. It's against their biology, right? Because you learn self-regulation through co-regulation. And so that's the thing that I think is, is that even though we know developmentally um, co-regulation happens before self-regulation, the current cultural milieu that we're living in expects self-regulation to supersede a biological imperative. Mm -hmm. So these behaviors, the wonderful thing about these behaviors is when they start to show up, a kid's trying to regulate themselves. And these behaviors are, and then children become quote unquote clingy. And what happens is, is that what kids end up needing is an external regulator. Because their system is saying is, I don't know how to regulate myself. Mom, dad, teacher, caregiver, whoever you are, help me regulate my system, which means is help me co-regulate. Hmm. So that idea around self-regulating, and if you grew up in an environment where co-regulation was very inconsistent, or with that caregiver, it was very dangerous, you don't learn the skill of co-regulation, you learn to self-regulate. But what happens is, is that you don't do it from a from what we call the window of tolerance for being in your in your ventral state. What you do is that self-regulation often happens in in those survival modes of fight flight mm-hmm. or in collapse. This reminds me a lot of I don't re- recall the term she uses for it, but Glennon Doyle talks about how she equates it to like it's not nepotism, but like with wealth and generational wealth and how you know money and finances is passed on and the richer get richer. And she talks about even with like mental health and this stuff that we're talking about how frustrating it is that it seems like you know the healthy people get healthier because this is being passed down and so if you don't grow up in an environment with people modeling this or helping you know children to co-regulate and I mean I've I've shared about it before with our first daughter like I really struggled through postpartum and I am still at three and a half with her like building that attachment luckily you know my husband was able to step in where i couldn't um but it was very obvious in her behavior and her interactions with me like you're saying with that clinginess because that connection it wasn't that it wasn't safe for her but i couldn't i couldn't show up the way she needed me to and how like how do you advise people to help somebody co-regulate when you're now the adult and they can't regulate themselves? Well, we, you know something? I bet you, Erin, you find that co-regulation in your life. So I've, I've heard the both you gabbing in your podcast. I suspect is, is that when you're having a shin day and you gab with Haley, how do you start to feel? I do feel I'm definitely an external processor. Yeah, I, I feel better. But her energy at that moment helps co-regulate you yes Mm -hmm. and you are hard on yourself and you go to that place of and I'll say like it's probably shame-based right absolutely I was like I had postpartum I was unavailable my suspect is is that there was a huge part of you that let yourself down because you wanted to show up in a a certain way for your kid Mm -hmm. and for yourself and there wasn't that capacity because of postpartum depression Mm -hmm. and so when you talk to your husband about that and you go into that bit of a spiral, I suspect is he grounds you. Yeah. 
right? Yeah. That co-regulation. So even though, say at some point we learn to self-regulate, here's the thing. We need co-regulation all our life. Mm-hmm. This, is why, this is why the pandemic was so freaking hard for people. Yeah. Government changed languaging from social distancing a biological imperative is connection and to tell human beings that you cannot be social is against our biological imperative. They changed it to physical distancing, which felt more, I can do that, but to tell me not to hang out with Mm. people. No. Right. Right. So there's a lot of things that we do. So even if it co-regulation can happen with a pet, Mm. Mm. Co-regulation can happen with a colleague. Co-regulation could happen when a teacher that sees that you're having an off day says, hey, kiddo, how are you doing? Come over here and sit here and play with this while I, I mark mm-hmm. mark homework, right? Mm-hmm. So co-regulation is happening all the time. Co-regulation is where somebody's nervous system is bigger and grounded more than yours. Mm-hmm. And what they do is is that because their window of tolerance or their nervous system is more grounded they call it being in ventral state what happens is that it allows your your window of tolerance to expand as well and go into ventral or grounded in, in more of a grounded um way of showing up so you i suspect is you've got a lot of people you have a lot of community and i'll use the word ground you but they co-regulate you. absolutely Mm. Yeah, you're right. Because even you saying that, like, Haley, my husband, you know, I am blessed to have a lot of friendships, but there are people that have a very similar energy that I go to when I'm in that really deep place. I might go to like somebody else if I I don't want to say gossip, but say I just want to vent, right? But if when I'm like, shit sucks, like, yeah, I have my safe people and they do embody similar, yeah, similar things. And what in those moments, Erin, what they're doing is they're rocking the baby. But they're not putting you on a lap, putting you in humming, like they're doing sometimes. Yeah, they're, they're doing what's age appropriate, right? right. So please, Aaron, oh, give me a hug, sit here, let me give you, a, you know, a cup of tea. So rocking the baby for a 30 something year old or a 20 something year old or a 50 something year old is going to look different than a six mm. month old. Mm. And here's the thing about when there's ruptures and, you know, trauma is a rupture. If you look at, you know, I had postpartum and I couldn't be there for my kid and I see the behaviors, there was a rupture. Mm-hmm. The thing is, is that we know statistically now it's 30, 70. We spend far more time doing repairs because there's that many ruptures. Right. And what so the piece is that what you're probably doing is creating opportunity to make repairs to your daughter. Yeah. Right. And so if you can think about, you know, from the age and stage that say that you had your postpartum, I would say as a therapist is, you know, those things that you might do um, for that age and stage, you might do moments of those with your daughter, like hold her, maybe rock her and sing her a song. Because what if you start to attend to those earlier pieces, guess what? There's a bit of catch up. Hmm. It's done in those moments. 
It's so crazy you bring this up because even yesterday her younger sister was having a day and I'm trying to cook dinner and our youngest has always been very affectionate. My oldest has been quite distant with me like that. And so I got out, Haley, you're going to die. I got out of the baby Bjorn baby carrier. My kids are big now, right? They're like two and three and a half. They're big girls. And so I was like, Remedy, like, do you want to go in the carrier while mommy cooks dinner? And she wasn't interested and that was fine. And then my three and a half year old comes up and she's like, mama, I want to go in. And I was like, I was like very careful because I'm like, you're definitely too big for this. Like (laughs) you surpassed the weight limit in my head. Right. And then I'm like, okay, honey, like, let's see if we can make this work. And it was this really sweet because there was a phase that I didn't have that with her because she stopped seeking it from me right and so to have these connections now or yeah she just says the sweetest things that I'm like okay it's working and it it heals something in me too to go like okay this isn't our whole relationship forever and you know and that's where it is you create opportunity and moments to attend to that where you can yeah absolutely right and that's where is hey mama can you do this and you saying is absolutely but you know i'm not going to put you on my shoulders we're going to keep you on the floor but what you're doing is you're attending to that need and that's where some of the repair work happens right Mm. i'm very interested in this like rupture repair dynamic with children i have two boys and i am you know, I'm definitely living in that 70%, right? Like I'm definitely, there's a lot of repair happening and, and even still not as much as probably should be. There's not as many repairs as there are ruptures, right? No matter how small, I'm not saying every single one is a giant rupture, but you know, as you mentioned, like trauma is a rupture. And so uh, as I'm like reflecting on my childhood and me growing up and then, you know, looking at that through the lens of like, okay, I'm the parent now, I guess I'm wondering how do I verbalize what's going on in my head? Um, yeah, this springs up a lot of stuff. And that's the thing about, you know, things like this and even conversations or hearing the T word trauma for the first time at some point is, is that we start to look at his hold on. Is that there? Yeah. Mind? What does that mean? Yeah. Yeah. And like, like I said, we're spending a lot of time in therapy. I'm working through my shit. Like I'm working through, you know, making sure that I'm not bringing in to my kids' lives, the things that were brought into my life, right? Um, And always bettering and things like that. And I'm not perfect. And I still, you know, in, in my less than healthy moments, I'm, I'm parenting the way that I was parented and doing maybe the things that I don't really want to be doing with my kids. I guess my, my question ultimately is like, if you're repeating the same rupture time and time again, like, uh, of course, that's going to lead to like a pattern for them or like a trauma for them. Right. Um, I guess, is there like a limit? Is there like a number? Like if you hit this many or like this often, this kind of thing. And like, how can we break that, you know, or like, I guess, repair that kind of repetitive. And you know, something, these are such and I think for me to just say, yeah, do it, like, yeah, do this, right? Or I think is, is that it would, I don't want to just be dispensing, you know, these quick little things and whatever not. There's a lot of things to factor in. You know, we, we think is, oh, no, this is what I'm doing. And I've screwed my kid up for life. 
you have well-adjusted kids. And guess what? Well-adjusted kids also have shitty days. And you are still going to see hyper arousal. They're going to go into hypo arousal. They're going to go into that stress response because we do that all day long. Okay, so I'm going to share something with the both I do trauma for a living. I can talk trauma all day. I teach this. Guess what? When 50-year-old Monica has a stress response, survival mode shows up. Mm -hmm. So the other thing I think that we also have to have in this conversation, the the questions you've been asking, how do we have some self-compassion? Because you can keep being tough on yourself, and and then there's a narrative that goes with that, um, you know. And and how do we say is hold on? That's the best I knew then. Mm. And I'm a firm believer when you know better, you do better. Mm-hmm. And that piece is is that you know, Haley, as you go through you know therapy, and what change looks like is going to be very different, right? So for you, change might be is oh shoot, as soon as the event happens, you're like oh I did it again. But at some point, you didn't even say that. And mm. now, in an observation of, I'm really noticing I'm doing it. So that might be an entry point. And slowly, 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 right, through therapy, you'll develop a pause button. And you'll you'll build your capacity to hold on to the discomfort of what's going on and be able to respond differently, mm. right? The process, right? I mean... As therapists, we're, you know, like I always say to clients and I laugh and I say, I'm really good at what I do, but I'm also not a miracle worker because it didn't happen overnight right. and it doesn't fix overnight either, right? Mm. And if you think about like, you know, doing trauma work and things like that, and I've had ruptures happen in therapeutic relationships, they happen there as well. Mm. Monica gets it wrong as well. But what happens is, is that the process is all around, does this feel safe in this moment for the client to be present? Or do I see them start to dissociate? Do I start to see them be flippant? So all I'm, I don't fix, fixate too much on the stories necessarily they're sharing or, you know, or whatever. What I always look at is, are you grounded and in your window of tolerance or have you got into a stress response? Mm. And so that's always what I'm scanning because I love what Stephen Porges and I, I I live by this in terms of how I do therapy and he's um, also the developer of polyvagal theory and when people are feeling safe and feeling grounded, how you show up in the world is very different from when you feel unsafe. Mm. How does that work though, Monica, with people who are hyper vigilant? Like they're always on guard. They're always, Haley has asked me because we see the same therapist. And so we compare notes and (laughs) she's asked me like when you're bringing up, you know, these situations and you're talking, she's like, how are you processing it? And I'm fully reading my therapist going, how is she responding to this? Is what I'm saying? Okay. Is this, you know, inappropriate, like whatever it may be. And I mean, it's no secret on here that I am definitely the more sensitive. My window of tolerance is much smaller. I don't feel safe often. And I have to remind myself, I think even um, in Sarah's discussion, like she was saying with us in her therapy sessions, when she's working with clients and she gets 
you know, maybe not dysregulated, but something comes up, like just reminding, like my feet are on the ground, like I'm safe. That alone has helped me tremendously since that conversation of just like, it's a very physical response for me. And then I start to um, go through it. And if I'm thinking about it too much, I'll spiral. And then I'm like, okay, wait, like today, I'm like, I'm just riding my bike. Like I wasn't hit by a car. Like I'm actually okay. Like that kind of thing. I lost my question. I apologize. (laughs) I guess that hypervigilant piece, how do they start to work through something like this? is that you know in the therapy room it's far easier for me to work with hypervigilance mm. than it is with somebody who starts to go into collapse and starts to shut mm. down give me big aggression i can work with it right mm. so how would i in the, in the play therapy room work on hypervigilance yeah i guess like how can people who maybe would relate to being hypervigilant. They're kind of always on guard, walking on eggshells, trying to anticipate, you know, whoever they're with, their response, their reaction. How can they start to, I guess, bring those walls down to be more themselves, but also feel safer? You know, as a therapist, I believe so strongly in what I do. So so are you saying like outside of the scope of counseling? I think so. Yeah. Yeah. Like Haley mentioned, we're very privileged to be in this situation. Obviously, I'm working on this in therapy, um, but it comes up there too. That's a really great question because it's looking at, is there an awareness of, wow, my anger is getting me in trouble or me shutting down and um, anything that has to do with emotions or I run away, I, you know, that that's creating more issues than it is being protective, right? So I think that at some point is that, is there going to be, what is somebody's entry point? Have they realized it? There is stuff that there's a lot of stuff and there's a whole culture of self-help out there. So there's a lot of resources that are available. There's, and therapy doesn't just happen by paying somebody for their 50 minute Mm. hour. Therapy, healing can happen through drumming. Mm. Healing can happen through somebody. I have a client that said, Mm. I go to choir. I love to sing. You know, for some people, healing might be restorative yoga. Mm. That the piece is we can't assume that that is still going to feel it may feel safe for some people it may not feel safe for other people but certain things that you absolutely can do is building your window of tolerance of how do I be with people that um, make me feel good hmm. do I have an awareness do I have access to resources that help ground me mm-hmm. Is there, um, you know, am I, how much do I value myself? How much do I value my body? Mm-hmm. So there's all these, you know, people think to be healthy, you have to do big practices, small practices, just noticing your breath. Yeah. Because often what we do is our breath when we go into a stress response because our system is getting ready for that. It could be something as simple as, you know, I'm going to have a cup of tea and I'm going to start to slow things down. Mm. I'm going to become more aware of self-talk that goes in my head. 
you know, the vagus nerve, which is for the parasympathetic nervous system, that's what helps us regulate. So things, why it makes sense is somebody who goes to choir, they find it therapeutic is the vagus nerve is just right back here uh, behind your neck. So when you do things, so when you chant, when you sing, when you gargle, what it does is it activates that vagus nerve that helps to regulate. Oh. Hmm. So I think if somebody isn't going to be coming to counseling fee for use, um, that they might start doing some research around healthier practices or connecting with people that they feel are healthy around them. But the entry point, like Erin, the entry point is so varied for people. Mm -hmm. If you live in a scary state, how do you even start to make shifts of, I'm just going to show up and nothing's going to be scary. That is a process. Mm. And it might be little things like, I, I, I'm, I have a client, for example, um, that had wanted to start to share with friends around uh, historical sexual abuse. Mm. And that was the most scariest thing. Mm. She had never disclosed it to anyone. So her was, how do I find the right person even to share the story was a big thing for her. And for other people, they share it and it's no problem. Mm -hmm. So that relationship to that activity, it may work for one person, it may not for another. Right. If I could switch it up for just a moment, because, you know, you've mentioned that you specialize in like play therapy, these kinds of things. And I know we've been talking quite generally. Um, I'm going to use my own family as an example um my oldest is three and a half and he's very sensitive he's very um aware of other people's emotions he gets this from me he's very empathetic if I'm crying he's right there like oh are you sad mom why are you sad like you know an hour later are you still sad like he's he's very intuitive these kinds of things right which I love and I am also all of those things and that has gotten me in in trouble, you know, in the past where then I'm, I'm giving too much of my energy. I'm spending too much time caring about other people. And so this is something that I'm very aware of with both my children, but especially my oldest. And we've been talking a lot about like fight or flight or freeze and these kinds of things. And I'm wondering like how much of that is just like innate because we get in these situations, right? I mean, obviously he's a toddler. It's, it's, something very minor to me is very overwhelming to him. I totally understand that dysregulation comes a lot faster when you're three. I guess I'm just wondering like what, how much of it is innate because he gets overwhelmed and then it's like, you know, this big outburst, but he doesn't want me near him. He doesn't want me. No, mom, don't look at me. No, I've got this. I'm fine. Like he gets hurt and he doesn't want me to come near him and I'm not hurt. I'm fine. And I'm like, you're literally bleeding, but okay. I guess you're not hurt. Right. Like where does that innate, like, line come into this fight or flight or collapse like you're talking about being a feeler and stuff like that some of it is going to be our own temperament right and so going into a stress response is innate mm-hmm. so that is innate that's going to happen to the 50 year old therapist it's going to happen to that three-year-old kid that is going to happen and he he might be a sensitive kid and, and because that often when people, like especially little kids, when they get hurt, they do gravitate towards people. Mm. And so he's like, no, 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 don't even come close to me. So I'd be curious about that. Mm. Right? But, 
but you're absolutely right. The, some of the sensitivity and stuff, that is a temperamental thing, right? Mm -hmm. The piece that is, that is innate for sure is our stress response, our autonomic nervous system, all of us, that is what we are designed to do, that when there is a threat, we are going to respond in a certain way either and we're going to go outside of our window of tolerance and either we're going to go into fight or flight or we're going to go into immobilization and collapse mm -hmm. that is that is absolutely unique so that stays consistent with people then typically what do you mean by consistent like if i don't want to say anything about wilder here Haley, but i'm like okay if his response based on what you're saying is to like withdraw and like wants that isolation would you expect that to be consistent as he grows up oh you know something Aaron you oh thank you for bringing that up because his might be don't come near me that might be a bit of a flight going on right for him uh, you know so that absolutely might be or you know starting to be a collapse we don't know so there might be something in it for him but the, the piece is, is that it also depends on, we have certain ways that we respond and those change relationally. Hmm. They change, our window of tolerance changes if we've been taking care of ourselves, we feel connected to people, that changes. So it's never completely static. Right. Right. And in moments of when we feel safe enough, here's the other thing, when we feel safe enough, we will connect. So like, I would say like, you know, like Haley for, for your son, does he typically connect with you when he gets hurt or, or is, and, and is, is that typical of him for all people? Like, I, like, I, I'd have some curiosities mm. about, uh, you know, does it happen only here? Does it happen in other areas? You know, like I'd be a bit more curious um, about that. Yeah. I mean, and I was going to follow up and I don't want to make this about me or my son, but like, also this is very much about me and my son. Right now. Thank <laughs> you so much. Um, you know, when you were saying like, does he do that because he doesn't want mommy to get worse. And I talk a lot about how much I can tell that like the pendulum has, has shifted for me. Right. Like I grew up in a household where I really had to care for my younger siblings and I was a lot in charge a lot of the time. Right. And so I'm very cautious not to do that for my son. And I still see him taking charge and doing these things and like, you know, being, being a caretaker for everyone. Oh, dad, watch out for this. And oh, mom, don't forget about this. And these things that are like, so cute, so sweet. And also in me, it's like setting off an alarm. That's like, oh my God, he has too much responsibility at three years old. Right. And so I, I think I, I try to be aware of what, how much of my emotion am I putting on him? How much am I unconsciously asking him to care for me and these kinds of things. And so in those moments where I'm sad and he's like, are you still sad? What, like, you know, basically how can I help you? I'm saying to him, like, I am sad and I'm going to be okay. And I'm walking him through these things. Right. And still he comes out in these ways and, and he is like that with everyone. And it does make me wonder, like, you know, why is he withdrawing when I know I'm, I'm very happy to say, like, I have a great secure attachment with my son. Like we are very in tune. We're very like, you know, connected. He'll come to me for things. And like, even after the initial, like, ouch, I got hurt when he can come down a little bit, then he'll come to me and he'll let me kiss it better. Or we can talk about it or whatever. It's just the initial reaction. And so I'm also very curious about like, why is this this way? And there's something really as well that you carry with you is this piece around 
you know, some of that historical stuff and a sensitivity to children caring for parents mm. or children having to be re more responsible that, uh, you know, like your radar is going to be on that because it sounds like you've done a lot of work and having an awareness. So it's always like often in the forefront of your mind. So when that caretaking behavior shows up, I bet you is it, it brings a little, a little tenderness of hold on. Why is this happening? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Definitely. Because you're trying to work so hard for him not to have the same experience you did. And there might be is, is that he is always going to be that caring kid mm. that goes around and cares for everyone, despite what you, you say to him. No, don't do that. No, don't ask. And, and, you know, the other beautiful thing that you're showing is congruence. It's a whole different thing as if on the inside you weren't okay and you're telling your kid, yeah, I, I'm okay. Yeah, every, because people pick up what nervous mm -hmm. systems are emitting. Yes. And people notices, hold on, something isn't right. Mom says she's okay, but I feel like something, something is off. Right? Mm -hmm. We're just doing what's age appropriate, which is, yeah, like mommy's feeling really sad right now. And she's going to be okay. Mm -hmm. So I'm curious because you, I was reading that you believe in the power of human resiliency. And I'm so curious. I'm not going to lie. Resiliency is a bit of a trigger word for me because I've been told I've got a thin skin and how am I getting a thicker skin? And it's kind of painted in this like, you know, be more resilient and I'm like, I'm trying, <laughs> like, how, how do I do that? And I don't anticipate that you're going to give me like a list of things that I can do, but I'm, I'm curious, like, what is resiliency to you? What are you talking about with that? Great question. Can I ask a question? I'm a therapist. So now not to ask questions. To, you know, Aaron, what is resilience? Because you said it's a little triggering for you. And because it sounds like is there's been some judgy judgy around you of, oh, you've got thin skin and you should be this way. So there's some shoulds happening. But for you, what does resiliency mean to you? I mean, I've never really thought about it, to be honest. I think resilient to me is people who are able to like go through hard shit or something happens to them and they're able to handle it better the next time. And so I think for me, where that comes up is that I am a highly sensitive person. You know, I, I cry when I'm angry. I cry when I'm happy. I cry when I'm sad. I think to some people that's taken that I'm not resilient because despite going through all these things, I'm still crying like that's I've made peace with that. I'm, I'm good with that. That's my expression. But there is there is a piece of me that's like, oh, yeah, it'd be great to not loop on this or to not react this way. And I think that's I mean, correct me if I'm wrong. That's my understanding of resiliency. But I'd love to hear yours. <laughs> I love resiliency because it can mean very many different things. Hmm somebody not to be vulnerable might feel resilient hmm. somebody showing vulnerability can mean being resilient right to share that i'll share a personal example for myself growing up i learned really young is that i had to be the caretaker like Kaylee, right so when parents were non-functional right? Due to addiction and mental health issues. Um, I'm an older child and I highly identify as that and have 
characteristics of the older child, right? Welcome <laughs> here. So what I learned was the only person that I can depend on is myself. Yeah. Now, the piece I can share is, is that me and my sister have talked about experiences and her understanding of us growing up is very different than mine because she was taken care of because I was cooking the meals. I was making sure things were done. So her experience was very different than my experience mm. being a child, right? So I learned is I can take care of myself. I don't need anybody. The only person I can trust is me. One of the gifts that my divorce, so I got divorced 14 years ago to my starter husband, um, <laughs> and now I'm married to my forever husband. Um, and you know what I gave myself the gift of is vulnerability to share when friends would just say is Monica, I'm coming over. And I would say, yes, please. Hmm. Right? And that was a complete different narrative from um from how I grew up mm. and I needed to say yes my resiliency meant saying yes I have lots of clients where their resiliency is saying no right mm. so when people will sometimes say resiliency is the bounce back from right resiliency also can mean I survived mm. That's all I can say is I survived. Mm -hmm. So resiliency is, you know, there's a whole spectrum. There isn't a one. Hmm. But what I, I say is, is that, you know, resiliency is not the absence of stresses and difficult things and challenges. I've got a friend. Don't tell me anything negative. I just want positivity in my life. No, you're talking negative. Stop saying that. And because she doesn't want it, right? But that's not where resiliency isn't having a life where there's no stresses human mm. beings our emotions go up and down a hundred times a day resiliency is so when that shows up how long does it take me to bounce back and go back to being me what beautiful right. and so for you you have the cry and you're like I'm good yeah. and here's the other thing for me I noticed and I'm not sure Erin if that's what happens for you when you're in your crying is when I cry there's this energy that's like like overwhelm or the anxiety or the stress or whatever and as soon as I cry yes and so for me crying actually helps regularly absolutely it's a release it's like it feels like that energy is stuck and overwhelm and frustration uh would be my two big ones but yeah then it's like it feels like a cleansing and I understand that it makes some people very uncomfortable and that's for them to deal with, but <laughs> welcome. <laughs> it is. It's a release. Isn't it wonderful? Your body knows what to do when you have all this energy and you're like, I don't know what to do with it. And your system just says, let it out. Yeah. Right? beautiful that your system knows how to regulate itself yeah and that's why i say fuck them right because like who the fuck are you to tell me that i can't cry when i'm feeling away like i'm not gonna tell you not to eat when you're fucking hungry or to pee when you gotta pee like let okay, me do but, my thing Haley, this could be a whole side tangent for the after party because this is the society and culture that we grow up in we literally raise kids to ask for permission for their basic needs sure. here's when you can eat here's when you can go to the bathroom and i think if you grow up in a household that also prescribes this is what this has to look like this is what this has to look like 
if you're not allowed to cry because that's not safe or that's not received well, then it becomes this like, like you're saying, Monica, like ignoring a basic like body need. And in my experience, whenever I've tried to suppress that or repress Mm -hmm. it because it hasn't been appropriate, my poor husband, good God, he... (laughs) he sees the effects of it and you're right like have your cry feel better yeah there may be times right where i'm in the middle of a work-related conversation and i know is it doesn't feel safe to release those tears and i can hold on to them knowing is okay i'm noticing as my body temperature is rising i'm starting to feel uncomfortable in my body um like i can i can feel a little something in my eyes and i'm gonna have this conversation and i'm just gonna have my listening ears on because i need to focus on grounding myself Mm -hmm. And so because I don't want to let those tears out right now, it doesn't feel safe enough. And then I do it later. Right. Yeah. So, so there, so for me that, that I, I am able to do that. Right. And I don't know, like if for, for you, Erin, is, is it that every time that happens, you cry or there are times that you, your system is a bit discerning saying, doesn't feel right to me right now. And I'm, I, I, and I'm going to let it out. I'm going to discharge it somehow later. I'm definitely getting better and growing in it. I'm also not putting myself in situations anymore where I'm being made to feel like um, a big one for me, a big trigger is like, say I am being vulnerable or I'm, you know, respectfully pushing back when someone has crossed a boundary. And if I am not being heard, that emotion is a very strong, it's a very immediate. And then I do actually, I, I disassociate because I can't, if I continue that conversation, I haven't had to practice in a long time, but I have struggled in the past to be able to move forward without that coming up. And then it becomes about the emotion rather than what I'm trying to get across. And I have some people in my life that are great where I'm like, I need to tell you this thing that's hard and uncomfy for me and it has nothing to do with you. And so I'm going to cry while I do it. (laughs) And isn't it wonderful because it's getting overwhelming and the word you used was dissociate, right? Mm -hmm. There's an awareness. Your system does what it's designed Mm -hmm. to do. Have an awareness and that, that dissociation comes because in this moment, Either something inside of me feels unsafe, something outside feels unsafe, or something relationally feels unsafe. So uh, this feels too much. And so my uh, my body's here, but my brain is completely checked out. Mm-hmm. And once again, it's going to sound straight. Isn't it lovely that you're, you're having an awareness of I'm overloaded? Mm. I short circuited. And I collapsed. And once things felt safe, I came back again. Mm-hmm. I'm working on viewing these things as as gifts and as my body and brain's way of protecting me and keeping me safe. And it's a it's a work in progress. Mm. And it's your system that's just saying is something doesn't feel safe right now. Mm. Yes. And so you know, on that note of like Aaron saying, like I'm working on it. I'm growing through this and you know, I'm getting more aware of these things and she's an adult. Right. And so I'm thinking of it from like the parents perspective. And I guess I'm wondering, like, you know, you work with kids, what do you tell their parents when you're seeing these kind of behaviors or tactics or whatever we want to call them in the kids that you're seeing? How do you, you know, sometimes it's not appropriate to cry in the superstore or wherever. And so, you know, throwing a tantrum is not necessarily the most ideal thing at this time. 
how can we say to our kids, you know, toddler or elementary school, probably more that range, I'm guessing, because literally toddlers seem to have no control at all. But what do we say to them then? Like, hey, this isn't, you know, the spot to do this. Can we go home and and cry together? Or like, how do you manage that and show the kids that it is acceptable? Three things that I share with parents every time I do a parent consult, but I also do this with adults, um, that I'm actually doing trauma recovery work because psychoed is so important for people to make sense of what's going on for them, right? So one of the things that I, I share is this piece around the window of tolerance. So when we are in our window of tolerance, we feel grounded, we can connect socially, we have an awareness of ourselves, we can name feelings, our thinking brain is on. And when we go into a stress response and stress responses get activated when there's there's a threat to the brain and those threats are feelings of unsafety, whether physical, emotional, real or perceived, mm. the unknown, shoulds and incongruence. So when those things show up, it creates a threat to the brain that activates a stress response. Am I safe? Am I not safe? And then things happen as they do. So what I also normalize is for even the parents, their, their, their five-year-old will not leave them when they drop them off at school. And it's an hour ordeal to get them to the classroom whether it's the four-year-old that's going to be kicked out of daycare because of the aggression, whatever that is, is that what I one is normalize that your children are communicating. My system is overwhelmed. Mm. I'm trying to regulate myself through these behaviors. I'm having a hard time. Okay, so one is I normalize that process. The other thing that I share with all parents, whether it's a three-year-old kid, or it's a 50-year-old woman that does this for a living, how the brain functions. So what happens is there's three parts to our brain. So I'm going to have, and I'm going to verbalize it so that your listening audience can do this as well. Fold your thumb into the palm of your hand, and then put your four fingers on top of that. So this is really your brain. Now, that wrist area is where the reptilian brain is. That's where your autonomic nervous system, your internal surveillance system is. So this is all about survival it's very sensory based the middle part your thumb that is your emotional brain the top your four fingers is your thinking brain the prefrontal cortex all of us love the prefrontal cortex because that's our executive functioning it, it's like consequences oh if i do this then this will happen if i don't do this this will happen this is where rationale and things happen so we love to talk it out and use this part of the brain when we go into survival mode or the stress response is activated what happens is that prefrontal cortex those four fingers if you flip them up they go offline, that thinking brain goes offline, mm -hmm. and we are stuck in emotional and reptilian, emotional and reptilian. Mm -hmm. So the other thing that's important to know is the lower part, the reptilian part of the brain, we are born with that, okay? We don't have to worry about that. The emotional brain gets developed between zero and five years old. This prefrontal cortex, do you, do you know when that gets developed? 25. So to ask a tantruming kid and, and, and when they're 
prefrontal cortex one isn't on. And the other thing is think about how developed a four-year-old prefrontal cortex is, first of all, it's underdeveloped right now because we're going to wait till they're 25 plus in order for it to be fully developed. But if they are in a stress response, it's it's gone this way. So to say to a kid who's tantruming, stop tantruming, <laughs> let's do this later, is not going to work. Mm-hmm. If you ask my husband, when my prefrontal cortex goes offline and him try to explain anything to me, he'll say does not understand me because it's it's mute right what I would say is is that rather than it be about hey kid cry later <laughs> hey kid let's go home and you can have the tantrum just to name is yeah you really 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 want to buy that toy and today's the day that we don't get the toy your body is letting me know how angry you are so you start to name those things that rat because often as parents you look around and it's like oh my god everybody's thinking is is that I can't control my kid so we want to just vanish and what would it be like is helping your kid get their prefrontal thinking brain back online so what you do is you regulate you name what's going on so one is I, I then I tell parents about the functioning piece Then the other piece I I share with them is a piece around co-regulation, that nervous systems are designed for emotional transfer. They are designed to pick up what's going on with other people. Mm. So ours, so you talked about Sarah saying, you know, put your feet down, all of those things. What I also share with parents is how do you use your nervous system to help regulate your kids? Mm -hmm. In other words, is you Mm co-regulate. In other words, is how do you rock them back into being grounded? So work at de-escalation so that you can reconnect again prefrontal cortex is on and then you can do some negotiating around is what about we come back next week now let's take a picture with my phone this is what you want we're not getting it today we'll come back next week Mm -hmm. yeah that's what I was suspecting you were gonna say is basically just like ride the wave you know be with them in that moment and everybody else staring at you mind your own and buzz off because you know who hasn't been there with their kid but to me, it just brings up this thing that like, we need to stop tying our worth as parents to our children's behavior, because they're fucking kids, man, like they're, they're gonna, they're gonna have the tantrum about the toy that they want. Even teenagers, right? Yeah, totally. Like, how do you like, oh, your kid went to a party? Oh, no, you're a bad parent. Like, kids are kids, we all did dumb shit. You know what I mean? Like, that doesn't make us bad parents. And there is such a lot of high expectation. Mm -hmm what parenting needs to look like and I have to say I think about you know and I'm quite a bit older than the both of you um but I think about is when I was a teenager what teenage challenges were compared to this day and age access to information the Mm -hmm. level of influence accessibility to things um you know having younger and younger children have to look older and older and older and all of these things the challenges and what children and youth face today is so much more complex than when i was growing up so then parenting in that complexity 
my hat's off to parents who parent in this complexity. Mm. Do you have any favorite books, resources, podcasts, things that you, it could be about this parenting and complexity. It could be about, you know, regulation. It could be about trauma. What's your like top recommendation? I'm totally fangirling Deb Dana. And so she is the one who brought polyvagal theory. So that's, you know, the language that I was using around ventral, vagus nerve, um, you know, those sort of things. That is some of the languaging in polyvagal theory. And I'm totally fangirling her. So if you are podcast listeners, there's not a particular. So often what I will do is I will just Google Deb Dana. Mm -hmm. Or I love also is Bonnie Badnock as well. And she is somebody that is so freaking amazing. I went to a training of hers. I think it was about two years ago. And she's a trauma therapist as well. And she's also an author as well. I love listening to her podcasts as well. If they're more heady and stuff like that, where, you know, they might want to read stuff on with, from Dan Siegel. He is like one of the strong influences in, in interpersonal neurobiology as well. So those would be people that I would say, hey, you know, look out for them because I'm so fascinated by them. Mm, very cool. Well, Monica, I'm freaking fascinated by you. So yes. um, I need you to drop where people can find you as well because you're up on that list of names that you just said too. You're too lovely. So I, I work with children and I work with adults. And where I really do magic is with when people have complex problems. Right. So that, that's my ideal clients and where they can find me is www.monicabatara.com is my website. Um, so they can find me there um, and um, send me an email is the best way uh, we can go from there. Excellent. Are you accepting clients right now? I'm always accepting clients. Everybody in therapy is, I, you know, if you are looking for an after school appointment, they're like everybody else, there's a wait list. And then people who have flexibility, then, you know, I can do a two o'clock appointment here or whatever. But right now I am pretty full, um, but I, I'm still taking people on my wait list. Excellent. That is great to know. I wish we could see every therapist we have on here because you all are so amazing. And it just... You know, it's so expansive for me to see that there's so many different theories and so many different specializations. And I just, you know, I have people in my life that are like, oh, I tried it once. It wasn't for me. And I'm like, the options are endless. <laughs> it's so worth it that, oh, Monica, you have been phenomenal. Thank you so much for being so generous with your time yes. and wisdom. It's truly amazing. Thank you for having me, the both of you. Thank you, Monica. Oh my God. I want an after party with Monica. Like I just want to do the rest of my life with Monica. We could just bring her on as like a third cutie like, all the time. Oh my God. She'd be checking us left and right. I actually loved that there was a couple times that she was like, okay, but what about this? Like when I was talking about Wilder and she was like, well, does he want you to be not more upset? I was like, you got me there girl <laughs> I know I was like that never even crossed my mind yeah I see and this is the thing I think that like I mean I get it I probably wouldn't either um but I think that there's like this 
dynamic maybe where guests are like well i'm not i don't want to like say anything about them because they're hosting me on the podcast or whatever like, like please do fucking check me dude check me please like rip just, me apart literally i was about to say everybody check me but like not everybody because some of y'all no i'll be harsh with an invitation <laughs> yeah yeah totally right holy shit there's so many different things we could unpack here i wouldn't even know how to begin like this is the thing she was so gentle and kind and sweet but also knowledgeable like packed a punch but like a sweet gentle loving punch you know what i mean like seriously i think this like permission to recognize and integrate these things that are keeping us safe or have kept us safe or are protecting us and i wanted to bring it up but i was like okay well let this continue and i'll I'll bring it up here was i recently read you and i have talked about how like anger is like a safe emotion for you right and it's not for me and i'm I'm getting in touch with my anger a lot more which is helping me with my attachment with alinea and even that i mean i feel like since we've started this podcast like her and my relationship how i'm rewriting that narrative like it's come so far in such a short period of time and i'm like careful not to perpetuate it but then as we're bringing on new people that don't necessarily have the backstory like people are like oh fuck Aaron, why are you still bringing this up <laughs> this is why anywho Uh, I heard this thing the other day that said, it was like a little video or a podcast, I can't recall, but it was talking about how, you know, when you're angry and people will sometimes like feel shame around however they act out in anger, Mm -hmm. but instead of focusing on the reaction or the emotion, it's thanking your anger for bringing awareness to something that didn't Mm -hmm. sit right with you or you know, where was this for me? So once I heard that, I was like, holy shit, so much of the time it takes a anger is not something that I experience often, but when I do, I would say nine times out of 10, it's around like injustice, whether that's somebody not being heard, not being seen, not being respected and that could be myself. right? Right. But it just like put into perspective, this thing that maybe I've carried a lot of shame over or tried to like hold at arm's bay and then going like wow like what does this have to teach me right Mm. now Mm. and it's just been yeah it's been cool yeah similar to what you're saying when you were talking about crying and how other people get uncomfortable about that and stuff like just before you were like i've come to terms with that i've made peace with that i'm good to just cry i was like bitch go fucking cry like let it be because the thing is like it's like exactly what you said it's just a release right and so where you're saying like thank you for bringing attention to this you know thank you anger it's like thank you tears for like letting go of whatever i'm holding because you know i guess tying it back to what she was saying at the very beginning about metabolizing the trauma and these kinds of things which was so interesting to me and I will be doing a deep dive on Google about all of that because like I as we know was not a feelings feeler didn't have any feelings other than this anger that we're talking about unhappiness couldn't identify feelings none of that right and so as I've been going on this journey of like feeling my feelings and being able to identify these things and giving myself space to actually be in those moments it's been that thing of like, okay, you know, I'm going to cry now, or I'm going to be this, or I'm going to be that. And, you know, we joked about me having a cry session, a coffee shop. And even when we were talking about the kids, like you can't just throw a tantrum in the store. I was like, I was sobbing in a coffee shop. And sometimes it just do be like that. Like you just have to let it go. And like, I get what she was saying about like, you know, hold it till later. I 
was going to say, and I, same thing, was just waiting to bring it up here. Like, are you able to bring it back later though? Or are you like, oh, fuck, it's gone. I have to wait till the next time that it just surfaces and surprises me. Mm, No, because I think this is the piece we've talked about before. And like what I was kind of bringing up with her, even if I'm repressing it, it's still right there. So then I have to leave a situation and then I'm like in the bathroom sob like I feel everything all at once so intensely so there is not really a like getting rid of it right and coming back to I'm confused because then in that way can you stay in the situation and just have it sit right here in your throat and not be like falling out of your eyeballs or are you like I have to leave the situation right now because I can't keep this from falling out of my eyeballs the latter yeah I mean I can and I have sat through you know meetings situations um Yeah, without getting into specifics, I've sat in situations where I've had to be present and not leave or or I felt at the time that I could not excuse myself and handle that. It literally feels like, imagine you have to throw up, sorry for the graphic details, but like you, you can't do it there. You have no bag, you have no bucket. So you're like holding it in your throat and it is this whole body visceral like repulsion that you need to do and you're just trying to hold it back like it it because at that time too then I'm focusing on like don't cry don't cry don't cry and then my breathing gets really shallow like it becomes a whole thing which is so I mean I don't do that anymore because it ends up being this whole body reaction and what I was going to say too with the whole tantrum thing I mean maybe this doesn't work for everyone where you're like, fuck them. I've embraced that attitude, you know, in the past year and something that's really working for us with Linny and her big feelings and with me and my big feelings is like, we literally say to her, like, if she starts, you know, screaming or crying, we're like, let it out, babe, just let it out. Like I am right here let it out and I'm not doing that so that it's a shorter response but what's so crazy is like it'll be the different I mean I I think I've shared here like we've had an hour and a half two hour tantrums with her before many times and you know we'll have these situations happen and 20 seconds maybe is it 20 seconds that feel like eternity Mm -hmm. when we're standing in the middle of Costco absolutely is everybody like oh fuck absolutely <laughs> and it's oh, fuck them. yeah I'm still I'm I'm not trying to grill you here but I'm still wondering that okay the second you leave that meeting where you've been trying not to you know throw up out of your eyeballs are you then leaving and crying right then and there because you can't hold it back anymore and now oh. you're not in that space pretty well yeah it feels like when you're underwater I'm giving you all these like (laughs) it feels like when you're underwater and you're like trying to reach the top of the pool and like you can finally take a breath and this is the thing you know um very few people have seen me in this situation I do I fully hyperventilate I have sobbed so hard I have thrown up like it is like uncontrollable I haven't had that experience in four or five years. Like, because again, I'm not putting myself in situations where right. that's happening. So, okay. My follow-up to that before I ask you another question, because apparently this is just where I just ask you all the questions. Shit, this isn't about me. It's about <laughs> Monica. Everything's about you, babe. Okay. So I only like ask this so pointedly because I am the opposite, as we know, as we often are, where usually you know, the feeling comes up and I'm like, mm, fuck, can't do this here. Shove it back down. And it's not sitting in my throat. I'm not feeling like I'm waiting. You're just to get over it. I, well, I mean, I'm not over it. I've just suppressed it far enough that I can't feel it. And then 
I can't get back to it though. This is the thing. And this is where I'm like, you know, like obviously it doesn't sound ideal to be like trying not to cry in the meeting and this, that, and the other thing, but then at least you get it out because then I'm swallowing that because I'm in the meeting and then I can't get back to it later that night. And I'm like, "Mm, okay. And this has happened to me in a therapy session where I'm like, my defenses are really strong. We've talked about this before where like, it's almost overriding my willingness. So when in the beginning she was like, you know, her clients are saying like, I'm ready to do this. And their bodies are saying, no, the fuck you ain't. That's me. My -hmm. body's saying, no, the fuck you ain't sit the fuck down. And I'm like, no, I don't want to sit down. I want to feel this thing. And then, you know, the therapist is like, okay, like, can we lean into this part of you? And I'm like, I'm trying and I can't get anywhere. So I would almost like, I mean, grass is not greener. I totally recognize that, but it might be nicer to actually feel the feeling and then be able to pass it, you know? Okay. So this is important to know because obviously see the same therapist. We follow a similar model of therapy. I can't do it on command. I can't do it in our sessions where we're like trying to tap back in. I'll have moments where something comes up and it's like, I'm right there. But if it's like, all right, let's go visit her. Let's go talk to her. Like that's not, it's not the same reaction. I also think, and I wish Monica was still here and I wish we could ask her this. (laughs) I would bet a lot of money that at some point, everybody will have that experience of like, which one of, I want to, and I can't like, I think that is this whole somatic, like your defenses where it's what she's saying, right? With the entry point, with the thresholds, yeah. like that's going to look so different. I mean, the way you handle things boggles my mind because <laughs> I'm like, so what, like, where does it go? What do you mean? You're just yeah. not feeling it anymore. Like, it's just, oof. yeah. Well, no, it just goes down into the, I mean, for me, it's a deep well, right? So it just goes down into this well of emotion that I cannot access unless I'm like (laughs) fucking fucked up. You know what I mean? Why are you laughing? Because I'm like, you've got this like deep well with a reservoir and I got handed a fucking puddle. Like (laughs) this is, this is the thing. Yeah, I know, but it fucks me up because then I'm like, okay, like, so again, what she was talking about earlier when she was like fight, flight or collapse, right? I have very rarely, it's only happened a couple of times. Um, and most of them have been in therapy in like in a session where I reach, you know, I've gone too far and my body has been trying to tell me like, we're not going to go there. We're not going to go there. And I'm like, we are, we are, we are. And then we go there and it's just like red light all day. And I physically like I physically can't move. It's called psychological paralysis. And I get trapped in my body and I just like, there's nothing I can do unless someone moves me or we ride the wave and we work our way out of it, which takes forever. Mm -hmm. And so when you're like, where does the feeling go? I'm like, it goes deep into this well that like seems that the only time that I can get, you know, to the inside of that well, I then am frozen and there's nothing I can do about that. And it's so frustrating for me because then I'm like, okay, so I'm never going to be able to access these important things that I would love to work through. I mean, Hmm. running the risk of sounding like I'm pro toxic positivity, which anyone that knows me, you included would know that I am not. I'm curious if that's like hearing you say that. And that's not the first time I've heard you say that. Or do you go into these sessions and you're like, I can go there today. I am going to go there today. And I'm not going to be paralyzed like I am going to be able to handle this digest it metabolize it like work through it well the thing is at least the times that I've experienced it I don't know that we're going to be talking about that thing which is why it's so red light to me right and and 
similarly, like that's the only way that I can access these things is when it's like unexpectedly triggered in me. And then my body doesn't have time to stop me from getting there. Anytime that we're trying to access that point, and I, anytime I go into it with a plan, my defenses are like, no, we're not going to go there because it's too scary. And a hundred percent, it's fucking terrifying. Like I would not like, it's not a walk in the park. I don't really want to be there, but I do want to work through those things. This is where I come and I say all the time to our sweet, sweet therapist, who's probably sick of hearing it. Like, I am frustrated. Like, I want to be through these things. I want to get to these things. And she's like, slow down. Like, you know, listen to your body. We can't get there, which Monica was also echoing. Like, you can't get there if your body's not ready. And I'm just like, that's fucking bullshit. I don't want that narrative. (laughs) Thank you. Mm. So it's really, it feels, it feels very out of my control, but. Hopefully with time and practice and continuing to show up for myself, I'm, and I am making slow progress and chipping away at those things. But yeah, all of that to be said, the grass is not greener. I mean, I have a deep well. I don't know if I would really like feel like a puddle would be better. I don't know if you would feel like a well would be better. I mean, it just kind of is all shitty and hard. Yeah, I don't. I mean, even what she's saying, like to be in this profession and to be giving people these advice and like to still be experiencing that right it was like similar to our experience in the church like people are people Mm -hmm. and i think for us like no amount of knowledge or sessions or practices like it really is a gradual process Mm -hmm. and i think at some point you look back and you go like okay, look how far we've come, even though the day in, day out feels like one step forward, two steps back, one step forward, two steps back, like constantly. I mean, the work is hard, right? Like the things that we're, we're working so hard to overcome, like we haven't overcome them yet because they're big things. So we're not necessarily going to see each individual step up the mountain until you get to the Mm -hmm. top and you're like, holy fuck, I did it. But I mean, I think having these kinds of conversations and like, you know, opening my mind to different things or, or hearing other people echo something that I've already kind of, you know, heard before mm-hmm. and known. I think it just solidifies that and like keeps me moving in that direction, which I love. Um, All that to be said, if you have a complex trauma, wow, Monica is your gal. Dude, I'm yeah I'm jealous like I'm you're like I'm like I might create a complex job I'm <laughs> jumping <laughs> I'm jumping ship oh I could never I um, wish I, have you ever done that ace test no like eight questions or ten questions about different things you've gone through in your life and then it like scores you oh my god when she was talking about this I was like what is she talking about I was mentally adding it to my list of googling things no seriously we'll link it in the show notes and we'll link it in the newsletter and it's so fascinating to like look at your own threshold and so interesting stuff well I learned a lot today and I'm freaking thrilled to like literally listen to this 7,000 times over send it to everybody I know like I can't seriously and so cuties if you got something out of it we would love to hear about it we'd love to just like send your little love notes to monica too because what a gem she was so freaking sweet and we stan all the therapists that we have Mm -hmm. on here all the experts we have on here because 
They're so generous with their time and the wisdom that they're sharing from decades of experience. So what a blessing, what a gift. We would love to give her a little gift in return. So you can reply to our newsletter, you can drop into our DMs, and you can do that anyways because we just love doing life with you. And you can find us in the show notes at our individual socials and at Stupid Cute Club. And don't forget to leave a review so we can continue to have more amazing, amazing guests. Um, I love the idea of the DMs and everything, but even easier, even more accessible. Um, if you're a Spotify user at the bottom of the description of the episode, there is always a question about our episodes that you can answer right there in the app and it comes straight to us. So we will make sure that this question on this episode is a spot for you to tell Monica how you feel and tell her how much you love her so that she doesn't think that we're just tooting her horn because I mean, we are, but also we do do that. Everybody else should be too. So scroll down when this episode is over and you will find the comment box down at the bottom. We can't wait to see all the lovely things you say about Monica and we'll be back next week to chat with you guys. So we'll see you then. Bye cuties. We love you. Love you. Bye. Bye.